Well, let's uh, begin here by turning to Psalm 27.4. This is the one we read last time. David says, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate in His temple. That's our subject tonight, the beauty of the Lord. And then in the New Testament, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let's pray one more time. Father, we ask now that you would shine in our hearts. We pray for the work of thy Holy Spirit now as we consider the beauty of the Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I began last time to share a few thoughts related to this subject of the beauty of God. I want to acknowledge here at the beginning the fact that I borrowed many of these thoughts from other men, Philip Schaff, Jonathan Edwards, John Piper, to name a few. So if some of the words don't seem like they came from me, that's because they didn't. Well, let me just say that last time we listed three manifestations of God's beauty. The beauty of His nature. By that I mean the eternal beauty of the Trinity. The beauty of His nature. And then the beauty of nature. That is the created beauty all around us. Uh, Though it's been corrupted by sin, there still is a reflection of His beauty and glory in this world, in this universe that He's made. And then lastly, the beauty of his son. And that, of course, involves the superlative beauty of Christ, the one who is the restorer of lost beauty. So, with that outline, actually last time we dealt with the first two of those areas. And it was, of necessity, a very superficial treatment. In fact, you could spend your whole life on these subjects and still just scratch the surface. And, in fact, I think this glorious beauty of the Trinity will continually be revealed to us throughout eternity. In other words, you'll never come to the end of new things to see about the beauty of God. 
Well, I do want to do just a brief summarizing of what we covered last time uh, for those who might not have been here. Um, we said that although there is certainly a subjective side to beauty, it is not right to say that beauty is only in the eyes of the beholder unless you realize that the ultimate beholder is God. There is a true and absolute standard for beauty in God himself. If you ask what is beauty, the answer is beauty is what God is. He is beautiful. He is full of beauty, infinitely full of beauty. Just as God is the source of all truth and goodness, God is also the source of all beauty. And being made in the image of God, we are made with a capacity to appreciate and even in some sense to create beauty. Now sadly, mankind can also be a beauty destroyer. Sin is always a beauty perverter, a beauty corrupter, a beauty distorter. Sin always leads to ugliness, though that may not be immediately apparent. Ultimately, hell will have no beauty because hell is separation from God, the source of all that is beautiful. So even though something may seem beautiful now, if sin's involved with it, that's going to turn that beauty to ugliness. And ultimately, hell will be a place where there is no beauty. We looked at a dictionary definition of beauty and we tried to apply that to the triune nature of God. Beauty can be defined as the quality that gives pleasure to the mind or senses and is associated with such properties as harmony of form and color, excellency of artistry, truthfulness, and originality. We actually took most of those and analyzed them last time. Beauty involves symmetry and order and harmony and proportionality. That is how things fit together. Another aspect of beauty is that it is a mutual consent and agreement of different things in form, manner, quantity, and visible and or design. Now, the reason I like that definition is because in the triune God, there is a mutual consent and agreement of differing things, the things being differing persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, we must realize that God does not just fit the definition of beauty. He is the definition of beauty. Beauty involves symmetry, order, harmony, and proportionality because that's what God is like. Those things were in God long before they were in the creation. 
We're referring here primary, primarily to the eternal beauty of the relationships between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In God, we see harmonious union in diversity. Harmonious union in diversity. Three different persons, yet one God, a tri-unity. The unity of the three persons in one God is the source of all created beauty. Uh, if you were here last time, this is just a refresher course. Um, in God, unity and diversity are both ultimate. Both find their origin in God because God is both one and three. So, the divine unity and divine diversity shine forth in the beauties that we now see around us in the world that he's created. When we examined God's beauty last time, we said that it was a manifestation of, it's manifested in creation. We see in creation aspects of God's harmony, regularity, order, and design. We see those things all around us. You might say his artistic style is one of endless variety combined with great unity. That's what we see, endless variety and yet great unity. That's his artistic style. Where there is true beauty, there the Spirit of God has somehow worked. Earthly beauty is used by God to reflect something of his divine beauty, though it be but a dim shadow of his infinite beauty. This is true even of man-made beauty, even though, again, it is a very dim shadow of his infinite beauty and sadly is often perverted into idolatry or corrupted by the ugliness of sin. Even the best of earthly beauties was, meant, was never meant to be an end in itself. It was meant to point us to the originator of beauty. Any beautiful thing, really, the reason God made it that way is to make us think about him and point us back to the originator of all beauty. You might say it this way, that beauty in nature is one way of God's wooing us to himself. Anything less than God himself will leave us unsatisfied. If you just go with the beauty of the thing itself, it will never satisfy because it was meant for a different purpose. It was meant to point you back to God. As John Piper says, God alone is the all-satisfying object of beauty. God alone is the all-satisfying object of beauty. Psalm 96.6 says, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Well, that's pretty much where we left off last time. So I want to go on now to that third 
manifestation that we talked about, the beauty of God's Son, the restorer of lost beauty. But the great dilemma is how do you do that? How do you begin, even begin, to present the superlative beauty of Christ? As Philip Schaff says, no biographer, moralist, or artist can be satisfied with any attempt of his to set forth the beauty of holiness that shines forth in the face of Jesus of Nazareth. It is felt to be infinitely greater than any conception or representation of it by the mind, tongue, or pencil of man or angel. We might as well attempt to empty the waters of the boundless sea into a narrow well or to portray the splendor of the risen sun and starry heavens with an ink pen. The fact is, only God can show us the beauty of God. But he has done that in Christ. The essence of true Christianity is seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. I'll say that again. The essence of true Christianity is seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that comes through a supernatural revelation to the heart of a person, the inner man, the Father revealing the Son, the Son showing us the Father, and the Holy Spirit's illuminating work giving spiritual sight. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, working together in unity, do a creative work in the heart. That's what happens when you're converted. So, as we just look at a few things here related to the beauty of God's Son, may God grant us that light. May He graciously give us that light of the glory of God in the face of Christ, at least in some measure, here this evening. Well, returning to our concept of beauty as that which displays such things as symmetry, harmony, and proportionality, consider the moral character of Christ as presented in the Scriptures. First, let's consider the perfect proportionality of his character. Most people seem to have one or two characteristics that dominate their personality. I'm thinking here especially of Christians. And often their strength is their weakness because it's not balanced. It's not balanced out with a needed, seemingly almost opposite virtue. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Take, for instance, a well-known Christian, Martin Luther. No question but that he had a boldness and a forcefulness in his character, and God used that. But he he also was obstinate sometimes. And said and did some things that detracted from 
his profession of faith. So I say, often that's the case. A person's strength is also their weakness because it's not balanced out. The fact is, even as Christians here tonight, we're all unbalanced in some ways. But such was not the case with Christ. Again, as Philip Schaff says, Christ was free from all one-sidedness. What constitute the weakness as well as strength in most, in most eminent men, that one-sidedness, you see. Christ was not a man of one idea or of one virtue towering over the rest. The moral forces were so well-tempered and moderated by each other that none of them was unduly prominent. None carried to excess. None was carried to excess. Each was checked and completed by the opposite grace. His character never lost its even balance and happy equilibrium. Now, let me just give some examples, and you just we'll just go kind of slow here and just think about. These aren't mine; these are from Philip Schaff. But he's he's going from the scriptures. If you know the the scriptures, you'll know that these are are things that he's drawn from reading of the character of Christ in the Gospels, especially. With strictest obedience to the law, he moved in the element of freedom. Total obedience to the law, and yet freedom. He was fervent in spirit, yet always calm, sober, and self-possessed. He was uniformly elevated above the affairs of this world, yet he freely mingled with society, male and female, dined with publicans and sinners, blessed little children, sat at the wedding feast, and shed tears at a friend's sepulcher. Though his mind was always set on things above, he delighted in God's creation. He used vines and birds and lilies and many other earthly things in his illustrations. Think about that. Always, his mind was always set on things above, and yet he would use a bird or a lily to illustrate truths that he wanted to present. His virtue was healthy, manly, vigorous, yet genial, social, and totally human, never repulsive, always full of sympathy with innocent joy and pleasure. He, the purest and holiest of men, provided wine for the wedding feast, introduced the fatted calf and music and dancing into the picture of welcome of the prodigal son to his father's house. Think about that. He used eating and music and dancing in his picture of the father rejoicing. 
His dignity was free from pride. His holiness was free from unsociability. His approachability was free from undue familiarity. His benevolence was free from weakness. He combined childlike innocence with manly strength, all-absorbing devotion to God with untiring interest in the welfare of man, tender love for the sinner with uncompromising severity against sin. Never did a man speak so strongly against sin yet have sorrowful sinners so attracted to them. Consider how he combined commanding dignity with winning humility, fearless courage with wise caution, unyielding firmness with sweet gentleness. These are just a few examples of the perfect proportionality of the character of Christ. We're talking about the beauty of Christ, you see. Or consider how perfectly he, as the God-man, harmonizes such divine attributes as infinite greatness and infinite lowliness. Such diverse attributes, such diverse attributes as infinite greatness and infinite lowliness. He is infinitely above us, so high that we can't even comprehend his glory, his magnificent glory. He rules over the whole universe with perfect wisdom, and yet he's meek and lowly of heart. He, ta- he took gracious notice <clears throat> of the poor and the weak and the despised of this world. He himself lived in poverty and took the form of a servant throughout his life here on earth, even to the point of suffering the most humiliating death. In him, majesty and meekness are gloriously united. Majesty and meekness. Next, consider how he harmonizes infinite justice and infinite mercy. As an absolutely just judge, he will not acquit the wicked, nor by any means clear the guilty. He hates sin with a perfect, righteous hatred, and yet he has grace sufficient for every sinner. In his death he made it possible for justice to be executed and mercy to be extended. Or consider how he combined deepest deepest reverence for God with his own acknowledged equality with God. Reverence for God and equality with God. When on earth, he always showed holy reverence toward the Father. This was fitting as one who had taken on human nature, and yet in terms of his divine nature, he could say, I and the Father are one. 
He was one who combines in his own being the character of God and man in some marvelous, mysterious union that we can't even understand. Along this same line, think of his obedience to God and yet his supreme dominion over heaven and earth. He always lived in perfect obedience to God's commands, though he was Lord of all things. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. To say it another way, in Christ were joined absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. Absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. As God, all the divine decrees were his decrees. All things were created by him and for him. Nevertheless, as a man, he demonstrated the most wonderful resignation to the most terrible suffering the world has ever seen. To restore beauty, he allowed his appearance to be marred more than any man in his form more than the sons of men. In him meet entire self-sufficiency and entire trust in God. As God, he needed nothing. But as a man, he needed to look to God every day of his life, especially as he came to the cross. This is what we're told in First Peter. And being reviled, he did not revile in return, While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Trusting himself to God. So, again, in in Christ, we see entire self-sufficiency and entire trust in God, united, harmonized. Now, I just ask you, think of trying to make up the character of this one who is both God and man. His was a life that could have never been thought up if it had not been observed. No one could have written the Gospels. In Him were all the diverse virtues and graces known to man represented in perfect harmony and perfect proportionality. You see, it was not only that he possessed every conceivable virtue, but that he had them in just the right proportion to one another. What seemed to be apparently opposite graces were in perfect harmony in him. His whole life on earth was one of quiet, greatness, peaceful, simplicity, sublime harmony. He was godly beauty, Perfectly personified. Godly beauty, perfectly personified. You just try to write a gospel that does that. He is the altogether lovely one. The perfection of his humanity, the beauty of his character, was and is one of the greatest proofs of his divinity. Philip Schaff said, Christ's character is the greatest moral miracle of history. Christ's character is the greatest moral miracle of history. Well, I said earlier that the essence of true Christianity is seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
Saving faith involves seeing something of the beauty of God, especially as it's revealed in Christ. So the question for each of us here tonight is, have I seen something of the beauty of God in Christ? Have I, have you and I, seen something of the beauty of God in Christ? I'd like to close with some thoughts that may help us answer this vital question. Question, have I seen something of the beauty of God in Christ? Here's one thing you could ask yourself. Is Christ attractive to me? Do I see in him the sum of all desirable qualities? Is there a longing in my heart to know him better? Psalm 27.4, the one we started out with, this was David's desire. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. Do I have that desire? Is Christ attractive to me? Do I want to know more of the beauty of the Lord, to behold more of the beauty of the Lord? The second thing is the gospel of the glory of Christ wonderful to me. Is it good news? Is it glad tidings of great joy? That's what it is, you know. Is it that way to me? Is it that way to you? Another thing we could ask ourselves, am I depending on him alone for my salvation? If I'm still trusting in my good works and my righteousness, I've not seen the ugliness of sin nor the beauty of Christ. The last thing is his spirit changing me. When we become Christian, God begins a beautification project. Psalm 149.4 says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. He will do that. He will beautify, beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. He's the restorer of lost beauty. The Apostle Paul put it this way, He tells us that to behold Christ is to increasingly become like him. To behold Christ is to increasingly become like him. Here's how he put it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. We're being changed, you see, as we behold Christ, the beauty of Christ. We'll be changed from glory to glory. True, there may be much ugliness still in our lives. But the question is, is God working on those things? Is he changing me? The question we need to ask ourselves, is the Spirit of God changing me? The more clearly we see the beauty of Christ, the less hold sin will have on us. That's the way God changes people. It's the God-honoring way in which he changes our behavior. He shows us more of Christ. We change 
because we see Him. One man said, Beholding is becoming. Well, what if you answered no to those questions? Is Christ attractive to me? Is the gospel wonderful to me? Am I depending on Him alone for salvation? Is the Holy Spirit changing me? What if you honestly answer no? I would just say this. Open your Bible. Turn to the Gospels. And ask God to open your eyes to the beauty of Christ. The altogether lovely one. Even if you answered yes to those questions, we need to, we need to keep doing that. Lord, show us Yourself. Beautify us with Your beauty.